Welcome to Giraffe Tango Octopus, Freedom for Humans with Kirsten Johansson. Kirsten and her guests are here to help you stop struggling with your own self-acceptance and teach you how to love yourself unconditionally. Now, here's Kirsten. Welcome to GTO Freedom for Humans, where we talk about the ways in which we as humans can free ourselves from suffering by practicing unconditional love, acceptance, and compassion for ourselves. I'm Kirsten Johansson, your host, and I'm very happy to be back with you this week. Um, I did run an encore episode last week, and if you have not had a chance to listen to it, if you've joined the show a little bit further on, um, it is called Conversations with Your Inner Critic, and it's with my beloved friend and colleague of over 30 years, Roland Williams, who is um, all around awesome human being and also just um, is an expert in all things addiction recovery um, and really is just uh, a wealth of knowledge. And also he was willing to talk about his own inner critic on that call um, and to talk about what it says to him and how it kind of keeps him running, um, even though he's achieved um, really a ton of success in his life. Um, and still the inner critic um, has a go at him. So um, that was last week. So if you haven't had a chance, um, maybe give that a listen. Uh, and um, we're going to continue today with our series on the practical applications of self-love. And as is often the case, um, you know, sometimes life gives you what it gives you at a time when you need it, but maybe don't want it. Um, you're presented with the challenge and we do talk a lot about using our challenges as opportunities to practice. And so um, I'm certainly doing that in terms of my, uh, my intimate partnership. That's the relationship that is giving me a challenge. And also there are some wonderful relationships in my life that are not challenging me right now. So I do want to also um, balance things by sort of talking about the whole picture. So before we get on to our discussion of relationships and how to love ourselves first in our relationships and how to look for things that are not for us, that don't necessarily support us in relationships as a way to gather information so that we can make uh, the best and next right decision for ourselves, I do want to update you on my insomnia journey. So a couple of weeks ago, I talked about having started cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And I mentioned an app and that I wanted to get a little bit more experience with the app before I recommended it to you. I'm several weeks in at this point. I think I'm at 20 days or 21 days. The app is called Stellar Sleep, and it does give you a free trial period. And then it, and then there is a fee uh, for the app and, you know, it is some, a somewhat substantial fee, I would say, um, off the top of my head, I can't remember the exact amount. I, I saw the charge this morning, uh, in my account and it, it is over a hundred dollars, um, I think for, uh, six months on the app, but in terms of investing in something that will support me and give me ongoing instruction, clear instruction about what to do to address my insomnia that has nothing to do with pharmaceuticals or supplements. And that also is not about the, so sleep hygiene is important. So I'm not, <laughs> I'm not in any way, uh, dogging out sleep hygiene, you know, in terms of turn off your screen and, um, you know, don't do anything in bed other than sleep and have sex, those kinds of things. So we kind of already know about that. Or if you don't know about that, if, if you do a quick Google of sleep hygiene, you'll, you'll get a lot of information about that. I think that for some of us, um, for me, when you're struggling with sleep and then you're told, well, stop doing this and stop doing that and don't do that. And they are the things that are bringing you some semblance of comfort, or at least you feel like they're bringing you some semblance of comfort. And what I mean by that is, for instance, um, I was, I'm not, I'm not currently doing it, but I was often getting in bed and then putting on my headphones and watching something. I'm usually on my phone on a small screen, even though I know, of course, that looking at a screen right before bed is 
uh, contraindicated in terms of good sleep, but I was having such a hard time with getting in bed and associating, getting in bed with going to sleep that I was using that activity to self-soothe basically. And so I think for many of us, we do those things to make ourselves feel better, to take the edge off of something. And then the result is that it doesn't actually help us. So I have stopped doing that. And, you know, am I following it perfectly? No, there are some instances where I I think I mentioned last time that I was in the sleep restriction phase. And ultimately what that means is that I entered my sleep data for a week and you just enter, you just answer questions every morning about how your sleep went that night. And then it calculates a new bedtime for you. And that bedtime is going to be far later, most likely than when you really want to go to bed or when you think you want to go to bed. But the idea is that you go to bed when, not when you're tired, they, they do draw a difference between being tired and being sleepy. And so, for example, they, they mentioned, you know, after you run a marathon, you're, you're tired at the very least. And that might not be the best example because that's outside of the range of most of our experiences, but after you run a marathon, you're tired, but you're not necessarily sleepy. So one of the things that they suggested this is that those two things are different. And if you begin to understand and become aware of those differences, then you are meant to go to bed when you are sleepy. They don't want you to go to bed when you're not sleepy, because then you go to bed, you're not sleepy, you lay there, your mind races, and maybe your body starts to feel the effects of the mind racing, which is typically what happens to me. And then you continue to associate going to bed with not sleeping. Whereas, you know, they're really instructing you to, to go to bed. In my case, they move my bedtime to one 30 in the morning and to go to bed only when I feel sleepy and only after one 30 has come. So Yes, that's challenging. And then they also want you to get up at your regular time. Now, one of the core learnings for me is that the idea that you can only feel rested and healthy and have energy and, and have sort of the optimal uh, productivity that you might want to have during your day is if you get eight hours, seven, eight, nine hours. So in terms of the science behind that uh, and some studies that have been done, it's really five and a half hours of what's called core sleep. So that's what I'm working on. I'm not working on eight hours of sleep because to get from the uh, painful three and a half hours of broken up sleep that I was getting that made me feel during the day, like I was some kind of creature, but not actually a human. um, That's a, that's a, a steep climb, right? And it's really not necessary in order for me to feel pretty good, to feel somewhat rested, to feel productive for my brain to be sharp. It's really five and a half. That's the target, which doesn't mean that I won't get a little bit more sleep as I go along. There are nights when I get six and a half. Um, But as long as I hit the five and a half, I now know that I'm okay. So you know, it's really fascinating because we talk so much on the show about the way that our minds, our brains, our beliefs, our thoughts, the way we manage our emotions, and then the way we act on the basis of our beliefs, thoughts, and emotions, how those things create our life, how those things create our reality. And so this cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is, is no different. Um, there really is a lot about it that is changing your belief system or my belief system, my mindset, uh, my emotions, the stress that I feel about sleep. You know, if you're stressed about sleep, it's not going to help you. Um, so there's all kinds of little tips and tricks like that in the daily lessons. So I do want to say about it that it's quite well done. It's a well done, well designed, informative supportive app. If you would like to try something different with your sleep. And I talked about this in great detail on the other show. um, So I won't talk about it a lot today, but one of the things that I remember as I'm going through this process, and, and it really is about remembering gratitude and remembering the good and focusing on the good, because 
we are, we are and experience what we think about and what we focus on primarily, right? Because we experience life with our minds. And so if I focus on what's going wrong or what's difficult uh, versus what is going well, or what is maybe not so difficult, then I tend to feel worse and I tend to feel more discouraged. And so one of the things that I tell myself, because I don't want to forget this, is that I am off all of my medication, all of it. After like 13 years of being on, you know, mood stabilizers for anxiety and depression and insomnia, they're all gone. They're all gone. I don't take anything at night when I go to sleep. That's amazing. That's an amazing outcome. And like everything, this is a journey and a practice. So they do point out that one of the things that can be quite discouraging, and I think this translates to many areas of life, not just sleep, is expecting a quick result, right? Expecting an immediate result. I know that it is human nature to want a quick fix and also to want things, you know, when you're toiling away with a new practice or a new habit, or you're trying to heal something, whether that's physical or emotional, of course, we want to see some results for our efforts. I was meeting with a friend recently whom I reached out to um, because I needed some help talking through my options as I'm separating from my partner here. And I needed to think through, you know, where and how to store my things here in Malta and also how to manage having somewhere to come back to in 90 days after I go to the US and um, and I'm able to come back here. And he's working through some health problems and, you know, they're bothering him and he's doing all these new habits and he was telling me about them and I made a few suggestions and, you know, he's like, he's like, well, it's, it's helping some. And I said, you know, it'll, it'll get better. And he said, but when, but when, and, you know, I so much in my, my former life, I was so much a results person that this idea where, you know, you do keep your, keeping your eye on the prize is not a bad thing, right? Keeping your eye on the prize or a goal or your desire or where you want to be. That is, that is in no way a bad thing. However, if you keep your eye on the prize to the exclusion of experiencing the joys and the learning and the challenge and the, the, the roller coaster of the journey and the practices, we really are missing the point because the practices and the journey are the point. Because once we get to the there, if there is a there, wherever the there is, we have what's called hedonic immunity. And that means that something that gave us joy or pleasure or was a shiny sparkly thing for us will always lose its shine. That's what happens. That's why when we buy something new and it delights us for a little while and when we see it and we look at it, it, it brings us, you know, if, if we use the Marie Kondo, I haven't actually watched that because I'm a quite a neat, neat and tidy person already, but um, I do understand the idea of something sparking joy and eventually things that spark joy stop sparking um, so much and we need new things. So that's why focusing for me, focusing on the small joys of life that happen in the course of practicing and addressing my challenges are kind of where it's at. So that's what's up with my sleep and really embracing the challenge and, um, and yeah, so I want to move on to talk about relationships. So you know, we've, we've in our practical applications episodes, we've gone through a whole bunch of steps. I think actually we've gone through nine already, and I'm not going to name them today because it will use up our time. And, um, I want to talk just about relationships because there's plenty to talk about there. It's one of the three, probably sort of main, uh, areas of life that we all focus on that we all suffer as a result of, and that we all put energy toward, um, the other two being sort of our finances, right. Um, our financial stability, um, money is just, a typically is going to be a part of, of everything for us. 
And the other area is our health, is our overall health. And when I say health, I'm talking about physical, emotional, spiritual health. Um, so there's those two areas. And then there's relationships, right? Because even if you are a solitary person or you enjoy being alone, human beings need other human beings in order to really live the happiest lives that we can. Connection is incredibly important. So if you were not listening to the other episode, I'll just give you a very quick uh, download on my situation. I've been in my current uh, partnership since February of last year. So um, about 14 months or so, I think at this point, and it shifted, you know, it was one way in the beginning and then it shifted and um, he was going through something difficult. So when that shift happened, I didn't make any sudden moves, um, but I did experience uh, certainly a, a difference and a, and a drop for sure in my satisfaction, my joy in what I was receiving in the relationship. Um, and so I am going to reference Meadow DeVore's sort of equation of spending and earning, which we can apply throughout uh, our lives. And for me, in terms of relationships, it's, a, it's an important equation uh, to apply because the energy or resources or time um, that I am spending in a relationship or the anguish or the joy for that matter, I really do need to look at what am I getting back from that? Am I earning or am I just spending? So I'm going to talk more about that, but that's something to just keep in mind when you're thinking about your own relationships. And if you find yourself feeling drained or questioning, hmm, you know, is this relationship, it might not be your intimate partnership. It could be a friendship or a business relationship or a familial relationship. It could be any number of, of you know, relationships that are important to you. But really assessing what you're spending and what you're earning, I think is uh, incredibly helpful. So I'm going to talk a bit about that. And then I do want to give you just a few little uh, reminders, I'm going to call them, about how to, how would I put it? Well, the first reminder, I'll just tell you what it is, and then we'll figure it out, is about grieving. And so um, I mentioned that when I decided to end the relationship, um, as I was making that decision, I'd, I'd made it and I really needed to let the grief uh, hit me full force so that I could start to work through it. And that is how I grieve now. Having done all of the self-acceptance work that I did beginning in 2020, as I began to really get rid of the self-hating uh, voice that had interloped into my life and that was really running me in circles, what I found underneath that was grief and loss and pain that had not been felt and allowed to flow through me so that it could flow out and dissipate. And so in the course of finding all of that, I just began to learn how to really grieve. Now, there are a number of ways to grieve. There are um, different models of grief. The one I'm going to briefly talk about is the one that you're going to probably be most familiar with. And I'm just going to mention it because it is in no way linear. That is one of the beliefs about this model that can kind of trip people up. So there are stages of grief. I'm going to tell you the six stages. Uh, there was a sixth stage added uh, by David Kessler in the last few years. And so um, and they're the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stages, and they are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, and then there is meaning. They are in no way linear. And they also might not all um, resonate with you. What I find them to be is a way to name the experience that you're having, and also as a guide and a way to connect with other people in knowing that what you're going through is it's not, it's not it, your grief is unique, but the experience of grief is not unique to you. There are other people who will have similar experiences to you 
and that can support you and help you in yours. And so, you know, denial, um, we, when we think about denial, it is a rejection of reality. Um, and we can do that by, uh, rejecting it out of hand saying, no, it's not happening and painting a picture of something that's actually not true and not happening. And instead keeping this false narrative in our minds that that can be uh, denial. It can also just be avoidance, sort of sticking your head in the sand and deciding, no, this is not happening. I'm, I'm just going to focus over here so that I don't have to face what's actually going on. Um, anger, which is probably the thing that I'm primarily experiencing the most right now, um, is, is what it is, what it sounds like. And, you know, in my case, I, the anger is pretty broad. It goes from this to this, to that, to this, to that. And so initially I was angry that mm, the life that I, that I mm, entered into this relationship to build with another person. Mm, I don't think this person was actually maybe ever capable of building that life with me. And so there was some of my anger that just felt a little bit duped and um, let down and disappointed and all of that. And ultimately, that's anger about what I believe should be versus what is. So, you know, it's important to feel it and let it flow through. It's not particularly helpful uh, to hang on to. And so as I worked through those things and let some of that anger dissipate, I just saw it popping up again in terms of the individual interactions that I'm now having. And so even though I've ended the relationship, I have about 20 days left um, where we're living together and, you know, there's still some semblance of partnership left, although certainly not what was there before and, and not at all with an eye toward the future in any way. And so, you know, when the very behaviors happen, that caused me to end the relationship, I was getting angry and pushing back and arguing and all of these things. And, you know, granted, I needed to do that in order to sort of suffer. I don't like to suffer, but sometimes when I know I'm suffering and I know that I'm in a way suffering at my own hand, it's a nice wake up call to say, okay, um, this is what's happening. Anger is a normal part of grief. And this type of anger that I'm experiencing is actually creating more suffering. It's fueling itself. It's, it's not actually helping me to heal. Uh, there's bargaining, which is if only, if only this, if only that, if only I would have, if only he would just, if only he could, if only we could just do it this way you know, all of those kinds of things. Or if I would have known this, then I would have done that. Hmm. Again, totally normal, totally part of grief. I got stuck in bargaining uh, for quite a long time uh, over my cancer and what the cancer ended up, how it kind of ended up impacting my life and my health and my quality of life and those kinds of things. But getting stuck there uh, is, is not helpful at all, I found. And so when I do find myself bargaining, thankfully, I know what it is. And I think, ah, this isn't really going to help me. Uh, depression. Uh, I think we understand what depression is. That has definitely been a hallmark of this particular grief process that I've been experiencing. And how that shows up for me is that I just have difficulty um, getting to the meaningful, the meaningful, purposeful work of the day the meaningful, purposeful work of the day, whatever that is, it could be my own sort of personal work that I do and my personal care. It could be work-related. It could be creative. It could be my writing. It could be any number of things. And I have difficulty doing it because I feel low and deflated and, um, you know, I kind of want to hide somewhere, which for me typically is watching something on a screen. I think I'm not alone in that. Um, I don't, I don't really use food or I don't drink at all. I don't, I don't use food. I don't really use drugs. Um, I use a little bit of cannabis, but I'm pretty careful about using it, um, to hide. And ultimately I don't really have 
a lot of anesthesia behaviors left because I'm so cautious about them, but I do watch TV um, and I've been doing that and I have to, I don't have to, but I choose to be compassionate with myself and acknowledge, okay, you're doing this. Yes. It is likely making you feel worse. Yes. I know this. And this is what I have in me right now. Right. Um, so the depression is definitely here. Acceptance. Um, I do find to be quite helpful because when I revisit the decision, when I revisit the plans I'm making, when I think about it, just accepting that, that it's over and also accepting that this person is, is what they are. They've been showing me who they are from the very beginning, even though what they've showed me the last, I don't know, six or seven months was quite different from what they showed me in the beginning. It's still, they are still showing me. And so hanging on to what they showed me, you know, in the beginning versus what they're showing me now really doesn't make any logical sense, right? When somebody uh, shows you who they are, and we know, we all know that quote probably, and um, I believe it's my Angelou, hopefully I'm not misquoting. Uh, when people show you who they are, believe them. Yes, believe them and accept them. And in accepting them, that doesn't mean you stay with them necessarily. It means you accept them and that they're very likely not going to be any different, or at least not in the near future. And then lastly, uh, the, the stage that David Kessler added, um, and he wrote a book called Finding Meaning, the sixth stage of grief, I believe is what it's called, which I really, I recommend and really enjoyed. You know, meaning is not so much about the loss itself, but it is about what you experience in terms of the healing from the loss and the way in which you can change your perspective about what happened so that the loss doesn't stick to you in a way that pulls you down, but rather you are able to see the loss for what it was, see the healing opportunity for what it was and what it potentially offered you and to allow that loss to be to accept it and to be what it is and to dissipate. Um, because I have found that grief that I thought would never leave me has actually left me. And so that's the thing that I know from my experience over the last several years, I know that, that this will leave me. And in fact, I, I feel it leaving me each day, even when I am a bit triggered by this or that. So we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Freedom for Humans, and we will be right back. Are you tired of overeating, overspending, drinking too much, or being in relationships that drain you? Do you have invasive thoughts that make you feel bad about yourself and your life? Do you keep pushing yourself to the next goal only to find that it doesn't bring you happiness? You don't have to live this way. You can live a life of well-deserved freedom and happiness. Coach Kirsten Johansson is here to guide you. Book your free discovery session today at giraffetangooctopus.com. You're listening to Giraffe Tango Octopus, Freedom for Humans. Have your own story or have questions for Kirsten or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Freedom for Humans. This is Kirsten, your host. And before the break, we were just talking about grief um, as it applies to really the end of a, the end of a relationship, which in my case is my intimate partnership. Um, but it, it could be anything, you know, it could be the end of a friendship or the end of a business relationship or potentially a family member that you need to distance yourself from. I'm not um, talking about death so much today, although any of these can be applied to a death, uh, but I'm, I'm really, that, that can be, mm, I don't want to conflate the two uh, because it can make I, I think about something my mom said ultimately where um, people would say a divorce is like a death and, you know, her having been widowed, you know, she said, well, I'm not sure I haven't been divorced, but to me, death is death. So, um, you know, I, I really took that uh, to heart and I don't conflate 
death with other types of grief, uh, just in order to give death its due in terms of the seriousness and the uh, intensity of the grief that can come along with that. So I just wanted to talk a bit about how we manage ourselves in relationships. And so um, one of the things that has been so helpful for me is the three P's by Martin Seligman, and they are personalization, pervasiveness, and permanence. I use these when I am facing any challenge, but when I'm facing a challenge with a relationship where there are deep emotions attached to it that can inadvertently overpower all the other parts in my life. That's what I've experienced in the past. Um, these have come in very handy for me. So uh, you, I want to pass these on to you and a quick lookup will give you some additional information if, if you're finding these to be helpful. So first, personalization. And that is that, you know, most things are not personal. We can make them personal by blaming, you know, blaming another person, blaming a situation, um, trying to point to something external or even something internal by blaming ourselves. And also by this belief that we are surely the only person who is experiencing what we're experiencing. We're not, you know, it's yes, there's a range of human experience, but I find so often that I connect with people based upon similarities in experience and shifting something out of the personal so that you can really take a look at it, step to the side, like we talk about, step to the side and have a coaching conversation with yourself. So for instance, I'll just give you a quick example. Um, my partner sometimes just says the wrong thing to me. I'm just going to say it like that. It's just the wrong thing to say. Um, and so there isn't really anything personal <laughs> about what he's saying. It hits me wrong. I don't like it. And I can easily say those, are, and we have the language barrier. So I do have to use terms and phrases with him that I might not use with someone whose language is primarily English. Um, but, you know, I have to say, those are the wrong words. Don't say those words to me again, please. Now that's fine. That's fine. That's a boundary. Now he may say them again, but at least I'm saying that's not okay for me. And please don't, don't say that again. Where the problem for me happens is when I personalize it, when I somehow believe that he said the words to me because it's something about me, like, how dare you say those words to me? I'm not that I'm this. I don't deserve that. I deserve this. Well, that may be true, but that doesn't help me, right, to go to that place. And so one of the practices that I am having an opportunity for here is to let, you know, those words are going to come out of him regardless. And so it is about how I take them in and what, what, I, what I do in response. Do I react or do I act? Do I let them just sort of bounce off me because I know they're not about me? Or do I let them get in me and make me mad and then have conflict with him? Now I've done both. Um, and after a certain amount of conflict, it, it's, it creates suffering and I don't like that. So I've, I've pretty well stepped back and I'm reminding myself these, the, the, whatever comes out of him is, is about him. It's not about me. The second P is pervasiveness. And that's the belief that this thing that's happening is is basically it's just going to destroy everything in your life or that it is it is more important than anything else that's going on that this thing that is creating pain and that you're having a negative experience with it sort of overshadows everything and so you know certainly the end of an intimate partnership is a pretty big deal and when i when i have a a good strong coaching conversation with myself I am able to put it in perspective in that it is one part of my life, one part, an important part. Yes, but only one part. I have many other parts of my life um, that deserve attention and that are, there's tons of um, positive and joyful and wonder, wonderful things going on. And I have many other relationships in my life that are not an overspend. 
right? Where I spend and I earn and, and I feel loved and supported and I love and support those people. And so this is just one, this is one relationship. And the third P is permanence. And that is this idea that it's just going to last forever, that either the situation is going to last forever and not resolve, or the way you feel about the situation is going to last forever. And the sneaky thing about grief for me is that it can um, give the impression it's, it feels so painful. And because of all those different stages that I told you about before the break, and the fact that they're not linear. And what I mean by that is they pop in and out and in and out. And you think, oh, I'm done with that bargaining. And then ugh, here comes a bargain, a bargaining thought back in your brain. It can give the impression that it's going to last forever. And depending upon the way that we manage those experiences, so long as we know that they will not last forever. And so long as we allow the emotions to flow through us, and we don't get involved in complicated narratives about the emotions that cause them to stick, it will dissipate. Um, and, and time is a healer. I don't know. I'm not going to necessarily say that it heals all, but it does heal quite a lot. Um, when we give something time and we allow ourselves to feel how we feel. And we also, pick ourselves up and make ourselves do the things that we know will make us feel better, even when we don't want to do them. And it feels like getting to the productive thing, getting off the sofa and away from the TV and jumping over the abyss into whatever it is that you have waiting for you, whether, you know, I'm working on an article right now for brains magazine, and I really want to get it completed and submitted to the editors this next week. And you know, so for me, that's one of the things I, I want to, when I feel low, because uh, of what I'm going through, I just, um, I think, all right, jump over that abyss and work on your article. And within moments of working on the article, I feel better or within moments of even setting up to do this show, I feel better. Why? Because that is living one of my life purposes. This show is living one of my life purposes. Writing that article is living one of my life purposes. Doing yoga is living one of my life purposes. Um, making food for myself. So it doesn't have to be a grand gesture that gets you out of your anesthesia behavior, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be grand. And in fact, I would suggest that you make it not grand because the basically the easier it is, um, the closer it is to you, then you're going to be able to get to it that much quick, more quickly. And it will change your, it will change your brain and it will change your body. So those are the three P's. Um, and so in terms of relationships, I, I have a kind of a list of questions and they come from, they come from, um, what's the word aspects or characteristics is a better word of codependency. And, for me, that's the focus because that tends to be what shows up for me. I am much less, and I mean, I have definitely a, a history of addiction in my life and I have a history of um, sex and love addiction. And so that was present in my former relationships, but it's not so much present anymore. And so when I'm talking about aspects or characteristics of codependency, what I'm not necessarily talking about is being an addict, a user, a, an abuser, or a narcissist. People like me who lean toward codependency are going to lean toward potentially choosing people that are addicts, users, abusers, and narcissists. So that would be one of the questions. So when we're thinking about our relationships, what is the culture of the relationship? And it helps me to think about the culture of a relationship because it takes me out of the personal. So it kind of alleviates that personalization that I talked about with the three P's and that the culture of, of relationships and how those change over time and how they change when you change was something that um, I heard in the way of integrity by Martha Beck. I was listening to that book and my relationships were changing because I was changing and I was just 
when she talked about that and gave a name uh, and, and also some connection and um, a way to understand what was happening. I felt immense relief. It didn't, it didn't make working through those cultural changes particularly easy, but I knew what was happening. I thought, oh, okay, I've changed. And so the culture of my relationships are changing and a relationship can be two people, you and one other person. It can be you and a family, you and your team at work, you and the culture of your, uh, the company that you work for. It can be any number of things. So it's your relationship with another person or a group. So here are some things to look for or to ask yourself, because if you are wondering if a relationship is for you, uh, a partnership, a friendship, a familial relationship, if you're wondering about it, it's very likely that there's something going on with it that is causing you some suffering um, because that's per perhaps why you're questioning it. So are you seeking approval? Are you seeking approval or people pleasing in the relationship? Do you have a fear of abandonment or being alone? Those two things go hand in hand, right? Because if you have a fear of abandonment or a fear of being alone, it would follow that you might seek approval or that you might want to please the other person or people in the relationship because you fear them leaving you if you don't please them. But if you are approval seeking or people pleasing, you are not being fully yourself. And because for most of us, the goal is to be fully accepted and loved as ourselves, we have to actually take the risk of showing up as fully ourselves and not worrying about um, people pleasing or getting approval. We, we then learn how to withstand and how to be okay when people aren't pleased with us um, and when they don't approve of us, because that's ultimately what happens when you are fully yourselves. Not everyone is for every, everyone, right? So I know that when I show up fully as myself and I'm not concerned about saying the right thing or making other people feel good, that you know I'm not going to be for everyone and everyone is not going to be for me and that's okay. Um, do you feel selfish or guilty about not meeting the needs of others or not meeting the needs of the person, um, the other person or people in the relationship that you might be thinking about? So how that's showing up for me is that, you know, I have to find, I have to make my own plans and find a place to store my things and find a place to come back to because, you know, I didn't just come to Malta to be with a partner. I came to Malta because I wanted to be in Malta. And so I am quietly doing that for myself and it makes much more sense for me to keep that private. Um, and I see my, my partner struggling with those same arrangements for himself because his situation is just different from mine. His resources are different. His passport is different. The countries he can travel to his tie to his work permit, all those things are different for him. Um, finding a place to live, all those things um, are a little bit different. And I see the struggle and I do, I have empathy, right? Um, but there's really nothing that I can or should do about that. So it does give me a wonderful opportunity to see it, empathize with it. I do listen. Um, he, you know, he, he's a external processor. I, I call it, I'm an internal processor. So what that means is that I process internally. And then when I say something, I kind of have already processed what I'm about to say. I don't, I don't usually think out loud unless I, I make an announcement. I announce I'm thinking out loud so that somebody doesn't think that what I'm saying is my final thought. Um, my partner is an external processor. He, he thinks out loud. And so it's important not to attach to what he says, because it's literally a reflection of what's going on in his brain. It's not the final answer, so to speak. Um, so those are a couple of things that I'm experiencing there. Um, being irritable. Uh, do you feel irritable when your advice isn't taken? Um, you know, when someone's struggling with something and they consistently ask for help or talk about things and you offer um, 
you know, you offer a bit of advice or, or some potential solutions because they're, they're asking you, it's important from a place of humility to not be attached to whether they receive it or not, or whether they, whether they act on it or not, because ultimately, and you've probably experienced this, you might receive all sorts of advice or, or suggestions from people, but only, you know, only, you know, what is right for you. So for instance, he did, he did ask to speak to me. So sometimes when he's not just externally processing, he'll say, you know, Ashkeem, can I speak to you? And that usually means I need to talk something through. And so I put down what I was doing and I said, sure. And I could tell that, um, he, he kind of wanted some assistance and I said, you know, well, let you, it sounds like you want some assistance. So I got up and I, I got a piece of paper and I just really quickly mocked up his goals as I understand them to be and how the, what those goals are attached to so that he could focus on the things that will help him to reach his goals Uh, because it's very chaotic from my perspective, what I see going on and the thoughts that are swirling and everything it's, it's chaotic. And so um, there's not a lot of clear planning going on. So now what he does with that, I did, I did see him take some action. I have no investment in that because after the next, whatever, 19 or 20 days um, I'm gone. It's the relationship as it currently stands is over. I'm no longer tied to this person's life choices. And so that was purely my way of offering some perspective and assistance to him. Um, Being everyone's go-to person, um, that's that's not me. But if that's you, um, if you derive value from being the person that everyone comes to for things, um, that can really wear you out. And also when you stop providing for people, it can show you why people were in your life. How do they treat you when you're no longer providing what they need? Um, You know, if you're always the one that reaches out, if you're always the one that pays, if you're always the one who does this or that, and it's it's bugging you um, because the relationship feels out of balance, try reeling that in and, and setting some different boundaries for yourself. And then just taking in the information after you set the boundary, remember you set the boundary and then you see what happens. You take in the information that is provided to you. Um, Getting caught up in other people's trauma or drama. um, That's definitely was, has been happening because my partner has been, had a lot of trauma and drama with regard to his employment and, and money and, and work permit and all sorts of things here. Um, rescuing or fixing to your own demise, but really I would suggest rescuing and fixing, be careful. If you can help someone and you have the resources and the skill set and the know-how to help someone, that's wonderful. Um, if you're doing that a lot, you might want to look at that. How much energy are you spending doing that? And do you have enough left for yourself? And and what is going on in that relationship? Are you, are you earning? Do you have something coming back to you or do you, are you deriving value or satisfaction just from rescuing or fixing? Um, let's see what else is on the list. We only have a couple minutes left. So I want to pick um, the ones that are maybe the most germane to our talk today. Enduring. <laughs> here's one for me. Enduring unhealthy relationships to avoid loneliness. Yeah. I love having a partner. You know, I love having a male partner. I like to have ongoing and routine interactions with men. It helps to to kind of balance me out. And I generally just really enjoy having a male partner in my life. Um, I like physical intimacy and I don't just mean sex. I, I like closeness and um, physical closeness. And I, you know, I find it comforting and it helps with my stress level. And so of course there's a part of me that's like, Oh man, I'm going to be back to being single. And I'm not someone who shares their body with somebody that they don't love. No, no judgment. Um, if, if that's, uh, if you like to hook up, I have zero judgment about that. It's just not really for me, uh, from a emotional perspective and also from a health perspective because of my medical history. 
Um, so, you know, I'm going to be alone for some un unknown period of time until I meet someone out in the wild. I'm not, I'm not an app person. So until I happen to meet somebody out in the wild, um, that I feel like I want to spend time with and invest, you know, my time and energy and emotions into, I'm, I'm going to be by myself. Um, so, you know, it is what it is. Uh, do you give of your finances or resources to depletion? Or even if you're not depleting, maybe because maybe you have a lot um, and you have a lot of excess that you can give, what are you getting? What are you getting for that spend? Because even if you're not depleted, you could be overspending. Um, we talked about choosing addicts and users and abusers and narcissists. So uh, do be cautious, eyes wide open. And even if you don't see the signs right in the beginning, uh, like I didn't, if you see them a little ways in, do believe them, do believe them and start to take in that information so that you can have your own back. Um, and then I think I want to end on this one. Self-limiting or self-sabotaging beliefs. Self-limiting or self-sabotaging beliefs are the hallmark of self-hate, of the inner critic, of not valuing and loving yourself, because ultimately you get to decide, you decide who you are. You decide to show up completely as yourself. You decide what you accept or what you don't accept in your life. You are worthy. You are worthy of love. You are lovable. There is nothing wrong with you. There is nothing wrong with you. And so putting to rest self-limiting or self-sabotaging beliefs will allow you to make a natural and intuitive, maybe difficult, but important decision for yourself, your life, your health, your well-being, your finances, so you can live this one and only life um, to your best ability. So that's all we have time for today. It is a pleasure to do this show and make it for you. And I hope you heard something that is helpful to you. You can reach me at uh, giraffetangooctopus.com and across social media at GTO Coaching. Love yourself, free yourself, be yourself, and dance your own tango. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We hope we have helped you learn to love yourself unconditionally and accept and celebrate everything that makes you, you. Tune in next Wednesday for another episode. And in the meantime, dance your own tango.